HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, Greg Benson here, host of Back Bar and The Speakeasy, and at this point I'm pretty sure there's got to be some more. I'm dropping into your feed with something a little different than usual, but something that I am really excited about, because when we make Back Bar, we usually talk for a long time with some really smart people. But like with any interview show, there are things that get left out of the final cut. And I thought that that was just the biggest damn shame, so for season three, we're launching a little something that I like to call Satellite Bar. These are going to be shorter little appetizers in between the main episodes where I get to play you some of the smartest, funniest, most eye-opening moments with our guests that didn't make it into the final interview. Think of it like an Inside the Episode special. And this time, you're in luck because the episode you get to duck into had this guy on it. I'll never forget my first encounter in the 70s as a young bartender with the old-fashioned. And there were... There were old-fashioned drinkers who were ready to ready to hang me from the highest yard arm. Dil DeGroff, former head bartender of the Rainbow Room, author of Craft of the Cocktail, founder of... Ah, screw it, you know who he is. If I topped it with soda or water, uh, they they quickly uh, corrected me and said, no, you, you use the water or the soda simply as the tiniest amount needed to get that sugar to dissolve and then leave their... Don't you dare put any water in my whiskey. You know, these were the serious old-fashioned drinkers I'm talking about. And uh, they were not going to tolerate, you know, this young bartender topping. And the waiters, if you put the the old-fashioned up in the waiter station, these idiots would take the soda gun and top it with soda. You know, I had to, I had to keep it away from them, slap their hands and say, don't you dare top that with soda or water. Or they'd say, which one, soda or water? I said, nothing. Leave it alone, you know. That's after I learned, you know. At first, the waiters were teaching me, and then I found out that they were idiots who didn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, the customers taught me, you know, how it should be, the serious drinkers. By the way, that noise you're hearing in the background, that was 100% him mixing old-fashioned during our interview. As you'll remember, in the episode, we talked about how Dale originally came to start making classic drinks the way they were meant to be. He elaborated on that a little later in our interview and the man who gave him the assignment that would change his life. My career exists because of a guy named Joe Baum and a lot of people, Kevin Zraeli, you know, a lot of chefs. Alice Waters, who was a student 
you know, studying in France from Berkeley. She loved the way people ate over there. She fell in love with it. She went back to finish her schooling and she's just dreaming about restaurants and maybe, you know, could that be my... And then she sees the opening of the Four Seasons restaurant in New York City in 1959 it opened. But there was a lot of publicity going forward because it was so popular, so interesting what they were doing. A seasonally changing menu four times a year. And she notices and reads about this over and over again. It was Joe Baum who opened that restaurant. It was Joe that gave her the nerve to open Chez Panisse, you know. So he had a huge impact. A menu consultant in 1959 when he opened the Four Seasons and he opened La Fonda del Sol, a celebration of Latin cuisine in 1950, not 60, it opened, I'm sorry, in the Time Life building. It was James Beard was his consultant because they both had a vision that they shared of a new American cuisine. Joe wanted to bring the first American culinary art form, as David Wondrich describes it in this book, you know, back to what it had been. So when he hired me at Aurora, this fine dining French restaurant, believe it or not, with a, with a two-star, three-star Michelin chef, Gerard Pango, uh, two-star Michelin chef, I think he was at the time. Uh, I, I was a bit confused after that first interview with Joe where he said, I want a classic cocktail program from the 19th century. And then I look at the wine list and it's all the wines of Burgundy. There's a big, you know, huge copper, you know, old milk tub at the front of the bar filled with all these champagnes and sparkling wines from Burgundy. And I'm like, you know, what's going on here? And it was six months in when Benny Goodman was sitting at my bar. And this is after watching Joe have meeting after meeting at the bank, at Horseshoe Bank, at right across the bar. There were two of them. And and I, I finally went to Kevin. Uh, not Kevin wasn't there, but one of his acolytes was the, was the sommelier for the restaurant, a guy named Raymond Wellington. And I said, Raymond, and Raymond really was the one who actually told me I was hired, but my interview was with Joe. Uh, he said, I said, what the hell's going on? Now I've got Benny Goodman at my bar. What? He's waiting for Joe. He said, it's a rainbow room thing. I said, what remember everything? Oh, come on, man. You don't know about it? Why do you think Joe's having all these meetings and everything? He's opening the famous Rainbow Room, hello, you know, on top of, you know, Rockefeller Center since 19, since it opened in 1930s. Joe's spent in the middle of a two-year renovation, renovation of the place, you know. This all happened while we were opening Aurora. You know, Aurora was like a little, I don't know, lab for Joe. And when he asked me to do this menu of classic American drinks from the, from pre-prohibition, you know, and go to Jerry Thomas's book and find out what was going on in the 50s and blah, 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 you know. It was only at that moment where I said, bingo, <laughs> I get it now. And I went immediately to Joe and I said, um, you have a few minutes, Mr. Baum? He said, yeah, what do you want? I said, so the Rainbow Room thing, I, 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 you're going gangbusters, it looks like, and uh, I had an idea for you. What do you think about the idea of taking a look at the old supper clubs that might have been in the shadow of 30 Rock, you know, the tallest building in Rock Rock Center, and looking at their old cocktail menus and recreating some of those cocktails up there at the Rainbow Room? He says, I've done it, and he had done it, of course, in other restaurants. You know, he'd done all that shit already. And he said, I, I make me a menu, show it to me. So I I went, I, I 
One of his partners was Michael Whiteman, and his wife, Michael's wife was Roseanne Gold. Roseanne Gold was the chef for Mayor Koch at Gracie Mansion. She wrote and helped put together little meals at my bar at the Rainbow Room eventually. But at that time, she was Michael's wife, who was Joe's partner in another company, not B.E. Rock, but B.E. Uh, but Joe Baum, Michael Whiteman company down in, in across from the Flatiron building down in that little square down there. And um, I said, Michael, you got to help me out. I got to find some books, you know, and he, he did help me locate some books. And uh, I used Michael and Roseanne as my tasters as I made this stuff because it was stuff, you know, like the cobbler thing and all that other stuff. And uh, the cobbler, by the way, ended up being a drink that I, I took another Jerry Thomas whiskey drink called the Whiskey Smash, which was nothing but a mint julep on a short plan in a little glass instead of a tall glass, instead of a, instead of a chalice in a bar glass. And it, it was muddled milk, sugar, water, it, whiskey, crushed ice, boom, done. You know, and it was, in, it was in a short little glass, like something like this. And I said, I was never a big fan of the, of the, of the julep sugared whiskey. Okay, old fashioned, you know, but that, at least that's got bitters. There's no bitters in it. And I, and I was, I didn't quite understand, you know. And again, granted, it, 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 when it's made really, it's really fun. And, 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 and with all that crushed ice, it does become drier. And if you don't want to put that much sugar in it's a good drink. I, I agree. You got to put a little more whiskey than you put in a normal drink, and then it works. But I said, what if I were to take whiskey cobbler where he mashed up those orange things? What if I were to do like lemon wedges? and the mint and mash it all up whiskey smash which is now a drink which uh bobby flay put on his first menu at, at bar american in in midtown manhattan which my friend jackson cannon put on his menu up at the eastern standard and he called me up a year later. He says, Dale, I want you and your wife to come and have dinner with me. We're going to celebrate something. I said, what are we celebrating? So we're celebrating like the 30,000th whiskey smash, which is the only thing people are drinking in my bar. And I went up and had a weekend in their hotel, all paid for it with my wife, you know, just to get a little award that my whiskey smash was their best selling drink, you know. <laughs> Like we talked about on the show, Dale is a big fan of fruit in his old fashions, something he goes out of his way to not apologize for, and something that's, frankly, gotten him into more than a little bit of trouble from time to time. When I was making old fashions, it was only when I got to London, working for the Mash Bar Group in 2002 through 2008, where all the bartenders in, in the UK, no one made a muddled old fashioned. Hmm. And by the way, the old fashioned in the UK was the money drink. They would take muddle, bitters, a little bit of water, put in a little bit of whiskey and an ice cube and begin to stir. And they would stir. And then they would add another ice cube. And they would stir. And they would add another. And then they would stir. And they, this would go on and on. And I'm sitting at the bar going, hello. <laughs> you know, I'm a New Yorker. I order a drink. I want to get it sometime this century. And I told I, I when I was training the bartenders at the Mike Bar Group, I said, "What's the deal with the old fashioned?" They said, "You know, tips are shitty over here. That's the money drink. The old fashioned is the money drink. We take our time. We make it look like this is something special, you know, <laughs> and it can't be made any other way, or it won't be special, and it makes a better tip." And I said, "Oh, I get it now. You know what? From for now on, when I come up in old fashioned, just throw the crap in there, stir it once, and pass it across the bar. I'll do the rest of the stirring." <laughs> but but that that was the first time I saw old fashions being made 
And by the way, this garbage quote, I don't eat garbage from, from 1890. That's where uh, Michael and uh, what was his other name? The bartenders at, at the at the Charlios that I learned this from, they, they said, you know, Dale, when you make that old fashioned, you ask the customer a couple of questions. You know, do they want to ride? Do they want perfect? But they'll tell you that usually. But you ask them if they want the garbage in or the garbage out. That's what they told me to do. That's what they told me to ask the customer. In other words, you muddle the cherry and the orange. Do they want it taken out before you add the other stuff? And then a new, you would put the new cherry and orange in anyway, but then they want the mushy stuff, the garbage taken out or left in. And most people wanted it left in for the flavor. Some people didn't, you know, and it goes all the way back to this guy in 1890 who said, I don't eat garbage. <laughs> I, you know, I, I want, give me some good whiskey um, and leave me alone. And then it was, it, so those two things, don't ruin my old fashioned with topping it with soda or water. And it was only when I, when I went to London that I finally found out that nobody drank the old fashioned the way that I thought everybody drank it. They all drank it with just bitters, sugar, whiskey, and a dash of water. Then I, they all said to me, what I was making was a lousy drink. And that would, so I did a little thing. I set the class up before they arrived. And I had two glasses in front of them, no ice, no nothing, just the liquid. I said, I want you to taste both drinks. Tell me which one you like. Mm. This one seems to be an old-fashioned, but this one's really good. I don't know what it is, but it's not an old-fashioned, but it's really good. I said, yeah, that's the old-fashioned with the muddled orange and the cherry, but you're not seeing the muddled orange and the cherry. You're tasting them. <laughs> they had never tasted the drink with the muddled orange and the cherry in it. And I'm not proposing that bartenders but there they will bartenders will still find people that want it done that way because there are still a couple of farts like me around fortunately for us dale wasn't the only one who chimed in about how he likes his old fashions the really simple versions i think are for making a drink when you really don't want to be making a drink David Wandrich, the author of Imbibe and Punch, also answered a couple questions about how he likes his drinks. You know, when you don't want all the paraphernalia, when you're just tired, it's so simple, it's so quick, you roll it together, you're done. It's also great for uh, field conditions. You know, it's a drink you can put together with very little stuff. Uh, traveling hotel rooms, you can do it. I can't think of a number of times I've stolen a lemon from the tea set and used a spoon to peel it uh, for the for the twist for my old fashioned, along with the sugar from the uh, from the coffee service in the in the room, uh, the ice from the ice maker, the the uh, booze from the mini bar, and the little bottle of bitter bitters from my backpack. You know, it, it's very easy. On planes, I used to travel with, back when I used to travel with a little bottle of something I called the the uh, Traveler's Companion, which is just rich syrup with bitters and a little lemon oil in it. And you just have to put a spoonful of that on ice with your uh, with with your mini bottle of, uh, of bourbon or scotch or whatever, and stir it and you're done. You've got an old fashioned right there. Very simple. David and I did a lot of talking about the practice of taking your bitters, this sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge practice of putting down a few drops of bitters, for health, of course, along with two or three ounces of whiskey on your way to work. Medicinal old fashions aside, we did wind up talking a lot about the prevalence of a wide range of intoxicants in polite society. 
it was uh you know recreational medicine put it that way like quaaludes it's my uh stress reliever i i was uh one of my first jobs i was the uh leg man for a mob lawyer i had to go and serve subpoenas and deliver letters and do all kinds of weird stuff this is we're talking the early 80s in new york and uh, one of their clients uh was a pharmacist who worked with uh, these things called stress clinics that were all over Manhattan. And uh, you'd go to the stress clinic and say, doc, I got stress. And he'd write you a prescription or she would write you a prescription for quaaludes, which you'd take to one of only a couple pharmacies that honored these things. And that pharmacist would fill the prescription for you. And then you'd go out clubbing and uh, have a great time. Uh, so uh, the client was one of the pharmacists. I'd have to be going over there all the time. Also, fulfilling one of the boss's prescription at the same time. So <laughs> you're not stressed out. No, you're not. You have just eliminated one source of stress in your life. Quaaludes aside, for the time being, we also had a great chat about the old-fashioned second, third, fourth, most recent rise to power and why it was so suited to the fashion of the late 2000s. You know, the aviation was popular for a bit there. Things with gin, things with weird ingredients, you know, that you couldn't get everywhere. The last word, very popular. Uh, versions of the Manhattan, anything with bitters uh, and, and, and weird stuff like that. The old fashioned was, just, you know, it was okay. It was there. Uh, it wasn't super exciting. But uh, once we get around 2005, 2006, and this cocktail revival starts taking on a uh, distinctly hipster cast. You know, it's it's starting to get like retro, and uh, beards are being grown, and uh, and uh, and arm garters are coming up, and things you know are trying to get like rough hewn and old looking. And uh, suddenly, it's like, oh, the old fashioned. You know, that is perfect for this because it's really handmade. You know, and, and it doesn't uh, involve any of that uh, uh, passionate shaking. You can kind of quietly muddle it. Uh, it had been popular in London. It just wasn't really popular over here as much. But suddenly it kind of blows up. And this was even before, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, the TV show, uh, Mad Men. And uh, Mad Men kind of picks up on that and 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 shoves it right at the center uh, with their old fashions. I mean, really, Ad Men then were drinking vodka martinis and they were drinking bull shots. They weren't necessarily drinking old fashions so much. Uh, so, uh, but it really fit the look that they were trying to get. And it was this just this whole idea of like there's an old world where everything is handcrafted. And there's nothing more handcrafted than an old fashioned, especially if you've got people carving ice, ice diamonds and ice balls, you know, and doing all that kind of stuff and uh, really, really making it uh, look rough hewn and uh, and 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 uh, and handmade and spending a lot of time stirring it and all that kind of stuff. And it, it just became like the perfect uh, drink for that. And then and it, suddenly it's like connecting to uh, Jerry Thomas and beyond uh, to the old days. And uh, it becomes the bridge. We also talked a little bit about how the old fashioned used to be very stripped down, simple and well, old fashioned. Nowadays though, 
<laughs> you know, back in the day, it was a very simple drink, especially in the 20th century when the Hong Jin version, you know, the Geneva version had kind of fallen apart, uh, fallen away. The brandy version was only in Wisconsin. Uh, and it was just really, even the rye version was hard to find. It was just bourbon. Uh, and now it's like everything goes into an old fashioned. It's like stone soup. It's funny. So if, as long as you call it an old fashioned, you can put 24 ingredients in there. I mostly make uh, rye old fashions or Holland gin ones at home. And uh, I'll, I'll, I like a Oaxaca old fashioned. I occasionally like a rum old fashioned, but in general, that's not really for, for uh, my generation or my interests. You know, I, I, think it's fine. I, I always say drink what you like. If that's the kind of drink you like, that's great. It's just not my favorite. I, I like it very simple and uh, just, you know, almost elemental. Uh, that That's basically uh, my preference and it always has been. I haven't really done any evolving or growth whatsoever. <laughs> I'm sure Dale and David agree on many things. But this is one they are in violent agreement on. However you like your old-fashioned, that's the way you should have it. As I said, I, I made it with a muddled fruit for so many years that I, I grew very fond of that drink. And it was our Thanksgiving Day drink, you know. And I wouldn't think of making it any other way on Thanksgiving. But, you know, uh, we all get more sophisticated. And, and, and you know what? I, I, I'm 72. I don't know how many drinks I have left. So I'm becoming very discerning when I choose the spirit that I'm going to put in my drinks. Another reason why I, you know, crafted the book the way I did. I'm going to choose the drinks that I like, you know, and I'm going to choose them the way I, I like them now. And when a bartender says to me, we're doing shooters, I said, I'm out. I'm not interested, you know. I don't have that many drinks left to waste it on shooters that might be really sweet and awful or too strong or just wrong, you know. If you want to give me a shot of Jameson's and, and I'll Cheers along with you. Great. I'm in, you know, but I don't want a lot of weird stuff, you know, in, in, a, in a shot glass just because it's the thing to do. I'm done with the thing to do. I'm done. I'm, you know, I don't even like the idea of, of laybacks and all that stuff either. I think it cheapens our industry, you know, and I, I think it's only something you do after the bar is shut down and the customers are gone home. If you want to do that kind of bullshit, you know, or maybe at the ice hotel up in Sweden or Finland where they put the ice luge, you know, at the end of the ice shoot. And that's where you shot a vodka. Okay. I'm okay with that. But I don't see it as a sophisticated way to present at a bar, you know, unless it's a neighborhood bar, you can do whatever the hell you want. That's that's there are bars and there are bars. There's a lot that our two guests this month have in common, and one of those is strong opinions about the old-fashioned. But perhaps the strongest of those is that however you like your drinks, that's how you should drink them. Thanks for listening to Satellite Bar. If you like this show, be sure to tune in next month for a brand new full-length episode and more behind-the-scenes looks after that. And hey... If you really like the show, why not rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts? It sounds corny, I know, but it really does help people find the shows you love, and if we happen to be one of them, well, all the better for us. In the meantime, thank you so much to Matt Patterson, Armin Spengen, Dylan Hoyer, Zoe Denkla, Ryan Laney, and everyone else at Heritage Radio Network. 
We'll catch you next time for more of history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. Cheers.